Seeing the crowd, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Hello. We are in week six of our sermon series. So if you open your envelope, you will find a coaster with a painting of a mountain. We'll talk about something that happens on a mountain today. On the coaster, I will place this mug, hashtag blessed. One of our staff gifted me with this mug a few months ago. The story has an interesting twist. I'll come back to it in a few minutes. For now, let me talk about this Brazil mug. Have you ever heard of the beautiful game? You can probably see the boy kicking the soccer ball on the mug. Soccer, a football for everyone outside of Canada and the States, is known worldwide as the beautiful game. Brazilian footballer Pele, he made the phrase synonymous with football when he named his autobiography My Life and the Beautiful Game. Pele played with improvisation, with finesse. For example, he introduced what's called the runaround. The skill of the move involves allowing a pass to run by you while making the defender think you will take the ball in your stride and then going around in the opposite direction around the defender and picking the ball up on the other side. The runaround. The way Brazilians played was different. It reflected Brazilian culture in many ways. It was free, creative, and fun. It was just outside of the European box. And the one who played it best in his generation was Pele. For a time, he was the most famous person on earth. Wherever he went around the world, crowds gathered. In this series of messages based on Matthew's gospel, we are studying the beautiful way, When it came to the beautiful way, no one had ever lived it like Jesus, and no one ever has lived it like Jesus. He went through all the towns and villages of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease. The response in Israel and beyond was stunning. Crowds followed. Look at Matthew 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Not all in the crowds are committed disciples, but they are following. They have come to see and to hear. The words of the prophet Isaiah in chapter 9, verses 1 and 2 are being fulfilled. We have them in Matthew 4, verses 15 and 16. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. The light of Jesus is shining. It's time for Jesus to reveal what the kingdom of heaven, the culture of heaven, coming to earth will look like. 
The theologian Pastor John Stott aptly entitled his book on the Sermon on the Mount, Christian Counterculture. This discourse that we find in Matthew 5 through 7 truly unpacks what it means to be a disciple of Jesus on earth. We'll see at the end of the sermon that the crowds are astounded by what they hear. So what did Jesus teach that was so intriguing? Are you ready to hear his words? To deliver his teaching, Jesus goes up on the mountain. You will notice there is a mountain theme in Matthew. On a mountain, in the third temptation, the devil lays out his game plan for Jesus. All the kingdoms of the world and their glory will belong to Jesus if he will only bow down and worship the devil. The devil offers a quick, easy way to receiving global power. Only one catch. Jesus must exchange his love for the Father for the worship of Satan. That is always the price of idolatry. Jesus sends the devil packing. The traditional site of the Sermon on the Mount is a ridge of hills northwest of Capernaum with a magnificent view of the Sea of Galilee. This was probably also the site where Jesus commissioned his disciples at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 28. We need the Sermon on the Mount in our hearts before we go make disciples of all nations. As Jesus sits down, his disciples come to him. In the Jewish world, teachers took the sitting position to teach. Remember, the disciples are those who are following him. They're learning from him. Many have left the familiar to center their lives around Jesus. They're growing in their understanding of who he is. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus lays out the beautiful way, the culture of heaven on earth. Do you want to know what it looks like? Different people have taken various views on the Sermon on the Mount. Some have believed that this sermon describes a moral standard so impossibly high that it's only relevant for a future millennial kingdom. In other words, the standard is nothing less than perfection, being like God. Therefore, it was far beyond his first disciples, and it is certainly far beyond us. In response, I would say the teachings of Jesus in this sermon are challenging, to be sure. But Jesus expects every follower to live by his teachings in our present time. Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven being expressed and experienced now. The only question is, how? <laughs> Others have thought the sermon's primary purpose was to describe God's absolute moral perfection. And it was meant to just drive us to despair in relation to our own right standing before God, thereby, thereby causing us to, to repent and trust Jesus for justification before God. The righteousness described in this sermon, however, is not the righteousness of justification by faith, but rather the righteousness of, of a life surrendered to Jesus. The personal righteous that is to characterize everyone who enters the kingdom of heaven. Others have found inspiration for their social agenda in this sermon. In the 20th century, Mahatma Gandhi was profoundly influenced by Jesus' teaching as he led India to freedom from colonial rule through a, a nonviolent revolution. In a similar manner, Martin Luther King Jr. 
the international civil rights leader, sought to make the teachings of Jesus in this sermon the basis of his commitment to nonviolence and civil disobedience. Certainly anyone who takes the sermon seriously will be greatly influenced in their personal and their social ethic. One more comment regarding my approach to the sermon. Some view it as just a collection of random sayings uh, put together by Matthew. I receive it as Jesus' authentic teaching on a hillside on a specific occasion. The structure of the message is just a unified whole. As a teacher who traveled from village to village in Galilee, Jesus probably preached this sermon on multiple occasions in multiple settings. The point is this. In this sermon, we hear the voice of Jesus. Jesus stands behind this sermon with all his authority. First point, Jesus' teaching reveals the values of the beautiful way for all his followers. In verse 2, we read, And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. He opened his mouth and taught them. That's a Hebrew idiom used in the context of Revelation. This sermon is the revelation of how the beautiful way is lived out when the kingdom of heaven comes to earth. In fact, the kingdom of heaven is the central theme of the entire sermon. Remember, the kingdom of heaven is about the rule of heaven coming to earth. Heaven's culture, heaven's rule is seen in Jesus, both in the way that he lives, in his actions, and in his teaching. In this sermon, Jesus will teach his followers to pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The sermon reveals how to be a disciple under God's rule in the everyday world. Verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to be blessed? You may think of popular self-help books that encourage you to live your best life now by thinking positively, maximizing opportunities, and living into the more that God has for you now, usually communicated with a big smile. After all, God wants you to be happy. A quick look at social media shows how many think about blessing. Oh, university scholarship, hashtag blessed. Unexpected raise, hashtag blessed. Wonderful family, hashtag blessed. So what does it really mean to be blessed by God? First, being blessed is not necessarily feeling happy. It's not a momentary feeling of happiness based on life just going your way. The blessed life is not synonymous with what we define as the successful life. Rather, being blessed is just a state of wholeness, of well-being, of satisfaction, of approval, based on being in relationship with Jesus. The blessed are in a good place with their Father in heaven. The blessed live under God's grace and care, even when circumstances are difficult and sadness is felt deeply. In chapter 5, verses 3 through 12, we have the famous Beatitudes, eight of them. The word Beatitude comes from the Latin betus, which means blessed. The eight Beatitudes, they summarize the, just the essence of kingdom life, the truly blessed life. 
They present a doorway through which disciples must pass in order to enter the beautiful way. For many, reading them for the first time, they will appear to be upside down, even strange values. The values of the Beatitudes reverse our conventional values in society. Jesus certainly changes the way the honor game is played. He redefines the source of honor as favor with God, not approval by your neighbors. The Beatitudes are are kingdom values that serve as as a pocket guide to the blessed life in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 3 again. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit? Why not the spirited, the strong, the self-confident? In Luke chapter 4, Jesus comes to his hometown of Nazareth in Galilee, in the synagogue, where the Jews have gathered. Jesus is given the scroll of Isaiah to read. And this is what he reads from Isaiah chapter 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus rolls up the scroll, Isaiah's scroll, gives it back to the attendant, sits down and says, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus has come to proclaim good news to the poor in spirit. The poor in spirit are not the weak in character or people who think they have absolutely no value, but rather the ones who know their need of God, who come to God with empty hands. In Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2, God says, This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. The question is, are we humble before God? To be poor in spirit is to confess one's complete dependence on God. It is not to lack courage, but to acknowledge spiritual bankruptcy. The poor in spirit acknowledge that no positive thinking, self-help strategy will set things right. They cry for mercy. Commentator R.T. France writes, To be poor in spirit is the converse of the arrogant self-confidence which not only rides roughshod over the interests of other people, but more importantly, causes a person to treat God as irrelevant. Notice the blessing is immediate. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven belongs to those who know they have no resources, material or spiritual, to help themselves before God. It is never given on the basis of race, good works, reputation, accomplishments, or zeal. It belongs to those who joyfully accept Jesus' kingship. Those who understand that their entrance into the kingdom is only by grace through faith in one person, and his name is Jesus. Followers of the beautiful way acknowledge their spiritual bankruptcy. Even now, the kingdom of heaven is theirs. The poor in spirit enjoy the blessings of relationship with Jesus in the present. They are fully accepted as sons and daughters of the Father. 
And they await the full experience of God's blessings in the future when Christ will return for his people. Jesus goes on. This is Matthew 5, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Those who mourn? Not the positive, the forward-looking, the effervescent. Those who mourn are those who mourn the spiritual, emotional, and relational losses due to sin in one's life. When John the Baptist and Jesus preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, they expect broken hearts. This lament because of sin, both personal and communal, it leads to a longing for forgiveness and healing through Jesus. Jesus' presence is a comforting presence for those who mourn. Listen to Isaiah 61 again, which describes what Jesus brings. He comes to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. It's Isaiah 61, verses 2 and 3. As the angel announced to Jesus' father Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's Matthew 1, 21. The apostle Paul writes to some disciples of Jesus in Corinth, as it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death, 2 Corinthians 7. Our mourning of sin is not so that we will despair. Rather, we mourn sin so that we will turn from it and turn to Jesus the one who has come to replace our mourning and despair with gladness and joy. In this life, we mourn the effects of our independence from God, our our destructive choices. We mourn family breakdown, mental illness, emotional pain, physical illness, injustice in all of its forms, persecution. But we do not despair. Jesus brings healing to our brokenness and we know complete comfort will be ours when the kingdom of heaven comes to earth in its fullness. John, the disciple of Jesus, writes, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Revelation 21. As Paul writes, our father is the Father of mercies and God of all comfort who comforts us in all our afflictions as we journey toward the expression and experience of the kingdom of heaven in its fullness. Jesus goes on in verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The meek? This was really hard for the Greeks to hear. The Greeks considered meekness to be wrong because for them it meant being servile and deceptive. Meekness meant weakness. 
Jesus had a completely different perspective. For him, the meek are the gentle. Jesus describes himself as gentle and lowly in heart. That's Matthew 11, verse 29. He's not demanding, bullying, shrewd, manipulating, or crafty. Jesus is meek, yet he confronts the religious leaders with truth. He rebukes his disciples when needed, and he endures the suffering of the cross to the end. Jesus was not weak, but he was gentle. We live in a world of many bullies, of people who throw their weight around. One of our elders, Phil Baltzer, told me this story a few weeks ago. When he was a young boy in elementary school, a fellow student bullied him, beat up on him. He didn't understand why. When he went home after school, he told his mother what had happened. His mother, Mrs. Baltzer, suggested, Phil, why don't you take some homemade cookies to the bully tomorrow? So the next day, Phil went to school with a plate of homemade cookies for the bully. Phil was never bullied again. A very practical lesson on the values of the kingdom that Phil has never forgotten. The meek do not seek revenge. They are not malicious. According to Jesus, the meek, not the harsh and tyrannical, not those trying to defend their little kingdoms. No, the meek will inherit the earth. Psalm 37 stands in the background here. Allow me to quote it. Psalm 37, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on faithfulness. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act I continue quoting. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. End of quote. The meek, they trust in God's sovereign care. They wait on God to right wrongs. And they know that when heaven comes to earth in its fullness, when God creates a new heaven and new earth, they will inherit the earth, Revelation 21. Jesus goes on, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. People who hunger and thirst are in dire need. They will die if they are not filled. They burn for God's will to be done on earth. The righteousness they long for includes, one, their own personal righteousness because they know they have been entangled by sin. Two, they long for justice for all those in the world who have experienced injustice. And three, they long for the salvation of the whole world living under sin's burden. In other words, They not only long to see their own hearts fully submitted to God's will, but they long to see justice done everywhere and for all to experience salvation in Jesus. They cry for all three. They're homesick for the new heaven and the new earth. They long for the kingdom of heaven, the culture of heaven, to come to earth. And they know that the only source of that righteousness and justice is God himself. A few months ago, I was praying and asking the Lord what he would want me to do in 2020. 
Micah chapter 6 verse 8 immediately came to mind. He has told you, O man, what is good and and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and, and to walk humbly with your God. A few weeks later, one of our kids' ministries team members gave me this mug. On the front, it says, hashtag blessed. What does it mean to be blessed? On the back, it reads, act justly, love mercy, walk humbly. I said to her, you have no idea how this mug is speaking to me right now. Do you think God wants me to follow this way? Do justice. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for God's righteousness, his justice. Love mercy. Blessed are the meek. Walk humbly with your God. Blessed are the poor in spirit who mourn their own sinfulness and acknowledge their complete dependence on God. What is blessing then? To be blessed is to be fully satisfied in Jesus and walk full of the Spirit. When his spirit is alive within you, you become more like Jesus. You act justly, you love mercy, and you walk humbly. You are on the beautiful way of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus, he pronounces seven woes, seven unblessings, which parallel the first seven beatitudes. Sometimes we hear what Jesus is saying more clearly when we look at the contrast. Jesus pronounces seven woes on the religious leaders of his day because they are arrogant, self-righteous, judgmental hypocrites. Jesus says, woe to you, and I quote, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness, Matthew 23, 23. Jesus says they are whitewashed tombs. They have an appearance of righteousness, but they're dead on the inside. The religious leaders of Jesus' day focused on attaining righteousness through studying and interpreting their law. But their efforts only resulted in self-righteousness. They were unable to enter the kingdom of heaven. Self-righteousness and pride always exclude us from the kingdom of heaven. Sometimes when I sit with other Christians, I hear a lot of anger, judgment, self-righteousness, and arrogance. Sometimes I see this ugliness in myself. Let's remember that those who enter the kingdom of heaven are poor in spirit. They mourn their sinfulness. They are humble before God and they are meek before others. They long for their lives to be transformed into the likeness of Jesus by his spirit. They long for justice in this world. They long to see those around them experiencing new life in Jesus. That is their passion. So what marks us? Let me ask you this question. Would you rather be around the humble, the gentle, and those longing for righteousness and justice? Or would you rather be around the angry and the judgmental, the self-righteous and the arrogant? I know I'm drawn to those on the beautiful way. Followers of the beautiful way are gentle and long for God's righteousness. When Jesus sat down, 
his disciples came to him. He taught his disciples. But he also always had his eyes on the crowd. Maybe you are in the crowd today and you are not sure who Jesus is. You may have heard about him, but you do not know what it means to be in relationship with him. You wonder what that would look like. When our daughter, Alana, was six years old, our family was living in Brazil. For a few years, she happened to have Pele's stepdaughter, Jemima, as a classmate. On one occasion, Alana was invited to their beach home for the weekend. When Alana returned home, we asked her, what is Pele like? Oh, he's nice, she replied. She had no idea who he was. A few weeks later, we were driving down a major avenue in Sao Paulo, and Elana yelled from the back seat, Hey, I know that guy! She had seen Pele's photo on a billboard. My daughter had spent the entire weekend in the home of the most famous person on the planet at that time, and she didn't know who he was. Some of you may be like her. Without a shadow of a doubt, the most famous person to ever live is Jesus. But maybe you just have never had the chance to learn about him, to come to know his way. You've been in the crowds, but you've never become a follower. You have never understood how you might enter his beautiful way. Know that Jesus invites you to enter his kingdom, to receive new life. He wants you to know him personally. You enter this relationship with him by becoming poor in spirit, mourning your sin, humbling yourself before God, and hungering for his righteousness. And you not only mourn and hunger, you respond to Jesus' invitation to relationship. You place your trust in him for your salvation. When you surrender your life to Jesus, you're forgiven. You are made right for, with God. You are freed of your guilt, the burden of that guilt. Your, your shame is removed and your fear of death is dispelled. It's a gift of God's grace. It's not based on your works or your merit. You're filled with the Spirit of God who transforms you into the likeness of Jesus. He makes it possible for you to live the beautiful way. And as you live by every word that comes from his mouth, you are deeply satisfied. Do you want to enter this way? If you do, then just follow this prayer that I'm going to pray. Father in heaven, I thank you that you love me. Thank you for sending Jesus, your son, for my salvation. Thank you, Jesus, for living on earth and revealing to me, to the world, who the Father is. Thank you for being faithful to go right to the cross and dying in my place and taking my sin upon yourself. Thank you for paying the price for my sin that I could never pay. I put my trust in you. I ask you, Jesus, for forgiveness for my sin. I want to turn today from my independent way, my way of life separate from you, and I want to turn to you and cling to you. I want to follow you. Jesus, fill me with your spirit to enable me to follow your way. 
Jesus, I pray that your peace and your joy and your love would enter my life and transform the way that I see myself, the way that I see you, the way that I see the world around me. I really need you. Thank you for the gift of life. Thank you for the gift of eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer for the first time, I would really encourage you to talk to a friend who follows Jesus. You can also click the button on your screen and raise your digital hand, that I commit myself to Jesus button. We would love to connect with you and encourage you. And now a prayer for all of us who are following Jesus. Just join me in prayer. Father, we thank you again that you have drawn us to yourself through Jesus. It's by your grace. Forgive us for those moments when we become self-righteous, when we become judgmental, when we're angry, we're hypocrites. Forgive us. Father, may we stay in that place of being poor in spirit, of mourning our sin, but not just mourning, turning to you and (laughs) realizing that by your grace, through Jesus, we've been forgiven, and then following you, Jesus, in life, full of your Holy Spirit. I pray that we would, in your name, do justice, that we would love mercy, we would love kindness, that we would walk humbly before you and before others. Jesus, enable us to uh, be like you as we live our lives, whether we're at home, on the street, at work, wherever we are. Jesus, may we reflect to others who you are. We ask for this mercy in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.